Hey guys, welcome back. It's Chris Bercher, knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. This is episode 12, and today I'm going to talk about fear. Remember, you can uh, check me out on YouTube, you can uh, follow my podcast, or find all of this stuff on my website with new episodes released in both podcasts and uh, video formats every Friday. So, f- fear. It's a bit, it always makes me think of, and it's not really correct to think this now, but um, Bill, Bill Cosby, you know, think what you will, uh, when he was a comedian, he had a skit where he said he was making fun of other comedians, and one of the ideas was that he would, comedians would often talk about concepts that, not funny, that aren't funny, and uh, you know, struggle to get a laugh, and he would say, fear! You know, that's just not funny. But every time I hear the word fear, I, I see this impersonation of somebody dramatically saying the word. Anyway, that's probably silly. But it's fear is real and it drives a lot of what we do. And I have come to realize in, in my short life that it's a major component that affects my quality of life. And so it is an obstacle that must be uh, encountered. Now, you know, we have fear for a good reason, right? I mean, the human brain is an amazing thing. And in order for us to have evolved as a species, the uh, us as individuals had to survive to reproduce. And in order to survive, we had to win or defeat or avoid all of the threats in the world that are out there to kill us, you know, from benign things like dying of thirst or overexposure to the elements or, you know, not being able to find a warm enough shelter and freezing to death or whatever it was. Um, there are some very real biological needs that our individual bodies uh, had to have or else we would die as individuals and potentially as a species. And so surely our brains developed fear as a response to drive us toward the good things and away from the bad things. Hey, there's a you know a forest on fire. Let's go explore uh, berries. I mean, you know, that that didn't happen, right? Um, we developed these these uh, you know semi autom often automatic or sort of um, autonomic or what's the par- you know parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. You know, some of these things are com- are unconscious re- reactions, and some of them are something we think about and make a choice like, hmm, should I? park in this really dark alley, uh, and I know my doors don't lock and I have valuables in the car, uh, or should I find a safer place to park? Yeah, you know, the fear makes you do different things. And part of that system means, you know, that some fear is good and some fear is bad. And so how do you know when to react to the feeling of fear? You know, they say that or I've heard, I guess, emotions are are uh, a warning uh, that something needs to be done, you know, or 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 at least alert you. Not a warning, maybe, but they're alerts to how we're feeling in a given situation. And sometimes we need to listen to those emotions and and make a decision. And sometimes it just happens automatically for us. But when there is the ability to make a decision, um, there's usually like. You know, I, I use the. I swear, one of these days, I'm going to write a book called Goldilocksian. And so, if you have 
If you listen to fear too frequently, or if you have too much of it, that could be a bad thing, right? You might be incredibly safe with respect to not going to get hit by a bus, uh, but you might be missing out on a lot of life's opportunities because you're scared to uh, go to a new restaurant because you don't want to talk to people. Uh, and then there's the other side, and these people have always amazed me, the people that just seem to have no fear about anything and 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 don't seem to have that voice that comes into your head that says, you know, if you jump off of this mountain uh, with nothing but a parachute and it doesn't open, you're dead, or whatever it is, or you can, you know, if you hike to Mount Everest and your oxygen runs out, you're going to die. Um, so there's, 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 there, there are endpoints along the spectrum of fear of having too much and too little. I think we can all agree on that. Some people are simply paralyzed by fear and never leave the house. It's literally, um, uh, agoraphobic people. Uh, and that's, that's a shame because you're not living life. You're not getting the pleasures of as many of the pleasures of life in trade for feeling like your fear is uh, reduced all the way up to the people who take a lot of risks and unfortunately um, can can be injured or 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 die um, I'm thinking about you know like race car drivers for example who put their lives at risk because they drive so fast and seemingly have this uh, ununderstandable by me, lack of fear about driving a car over 200 miles an hour and, and, and that risk not being perceived. So our brains are amazing, have an amazing alarm system um, inherent to them that probably helps us survive and has for a really long time. The problem is we're not really good about um, modulating you know, that, that effect or, or sort of interpreting that effect. And we can become paralyzed by it or not listen to it at all. And so the relationship we have between everyday decision-making and the intent or purpose of the, you know, it's not emotional, of the, of the physical feeling of fear, we all know what that, that feels like. But what we do with it can be completely different. And really right there is probably a truism about the human body that we should probably explore for a little bit. I figure most of those things, most of our <clears throat> our, rea- our our automatic reactions, and our brain's capacity to analyze or think about those reactions have evolved over you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of years. And the original selection pressures that developed the physiological responses or abilities and the way our brain works, those are lost in antiquity. We don't really know what the conditions were. You know, think for a minute, um, like Darwin's finches, you know, a, a finch with a certain beak size arrives at an island, and that beak size is really good for eating a certain type of seed that's plentifully, readily available. Over time, competition ensues, and so it turns out that some birds are born with of that same species are born with a little bit bigger beaks or a little bit smaller beaks, and the little bit bigger be- beaks are able to eat the seed from a different kind of plant, and the ones with a little bit smaller seeds can eat the seeds from a different kind of plant. It sort of spreads out the competition from this original type of birds and the original type of seed, and eventually they become different species because they improve. So the selection pressure in that case is the availability of a food source in particular seed sizes and the response, the natural selection 
biological response is to have progeny with increasingly divergent beak sizes to take advantage of that selection pressure. So that's an example of a selection pressure in a biological response. So our brains are basically accumulation of biological responses to various selection pressures. And I, and, and, and I don't know what these are. We can probably guesstimate, and um, certainly there are scientists who have a better idea what these are, but we can't recreate that complex, multiple, multivariate scenario of all the different things that drove our brains. And, you know, we have to leave the door open for some sort of alien um, <clears throat> or foreign, um, you know, monolithic uh, change to that to our DNA or, or whatever that could have happened. We, we just can't, we, we can't figure that out. But it's pretty easy to think that, you know, fear is something that evolved to be protective, to, to alert us to change our behavior. And probably most of the emotions and physiological feelings that we have are, can be simplified by saying our brains developed a response to some situation to at least make us stop and think and then make some decisions. But in any of those situations, or you know, that you can sort of sim- simplify things down to that, there's the physiological response, I'm scared, and then the cognitive element, well, what should I do? And uh, that's where we're sort of messed up, right? Because that physiological response could have evolved under the conditions of, depending on who you believe, a dinosaur trying to break into your cave. <clears throat> and that just doesn't exist anymore. There, there are equivalent things, but not the same things. And so we have to develop new w- ways. And certainly these co-evolve, right? The, the reaction, the cognitive reaction and the physiological reaction co-evolve when we try to make decisions. But we're, we're, suffice it to say, we're not really that good about it, or we wouldn't have some of the issues that we have. Because as, as my dad and my therapists and many people have said before, Anxiety is a fear of the future, and depression is a fear of the past, and those are two of the biggest problems, and increasingly so, that are plaguing humans in 2020. And so fear has relevance, and it's the relationship with fear and our ability to accurately uh, sort of assess what it means and to come up with a suite of potential responses in, in a way that those responses agree with our value systems and, and help us. And, and, and probably it's just because people don't really think about these things. You don't think about the fact that, you know, you don't sit down and say, what do I value? What do I want out of life? And then make a list and then try to make things agree with that. Because if you did, if you knew, if you had a basic set of tenets, you know, I, I want to praise God or I want to... Uh, honor my family, or I want to make a lot of money. If you have a very simple list, then when things like how you respond to a particular physiological fear reaction, you know, can, can, you can, you can couch it in terms of whatever your values are, right? And that'll sort of help guide you. But not everybody does that. But I think that that's something that we, we probably need to do. Um, And so I think what we, what we want to manage our lives toward is a response to fear that's Goldilocksian. We'll go back to that. Just, just right. We, you know, if we, or, or all the emotions that we feel, but in this, in this particular case, because I, I, I want to talk about fear as related to anxiety and depression and how 
the reaction of fear can cause detriment to our lives. Well, whereas some of the other situations are probably a little bit different. Um, finding a finding a reaction to fear that suits your values is is a Goldilocksian moment where we want to find what is just right. I don't want to deny fear and put myself at high risk, and I don't want to give fear too much power and allow it to limit the life experiences that I have. I want to be somewhere right in the middle. And I think that probably applies to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Ignoring all the exceptions to the rules. Um, You know, well, I will ignore the adrenaline junkies because I don't really understand that. But let's not ignore people who are crippled by fear because those people probably need to move more towards the middle because their quality of life is low. I, I, you know, I think adrenaline junkies are probably completely fine with um, the level of risk that they're taking. And now, the, I guess on that end of the spectrum, what really bothers me is people that are in s- live in such terrible conditions that they've had to necessarily lose their fear because they just have to eat, or you know, and, and maybe have turned to crime and, and, and or some of these people that we, we are scared of with guns and terrorists and, and things like that. Maybe not terrorists, but uh, gangsters, let's say. I mean, there's those I'd like to change those people, too. I mean, I think I think if we could solve the resource limitation problems that drives people to a lot of that. So on both ends of the spectrum, you have people that probably need to move more toward the middle. <clears throat> And so that goes back to what I was trying to get at last week that I'm not sure I adequately covered is understanding probability. So I think understanding probability, and it's in the same sort of scenario, high, medium, and low, because I said last time, you're not going to be able to accurately assign an actual chance of something happening. But you, you, with a little bit of studying and a little bit of letting go and analyzing the world and knowledge, I think we can assign probability into three different categories. It's like locking our door at night. I just, I, I, I view the probability of somebody breaking into my house based on where I live as being pretty low, low enough to make me feel like I don't need to worry about locking my door. Now, one of my daughters does not feel like that. She feels like the probability of someone breaking into our house at night is higher than me, and she likes to lock the door. No harm, no foul. I would rather err on the side of being overcautious, but at the same time, I worry that she doesn't have a bit of paranoia in her life that may reduce her life experiences. But again, that's not for me to decide, especially once she's 18. Uh, that's that's up to you, and it and it does bring me some peace knowing that she is going to be cautious, and um, but but I think I think fear can enter a world where if you are worried um, about uh, getting bombed by you know a, a plane or you know shot down by a tank, you know like a military sort of thing in the United States in 2020. You know, I, I don't think that has a very high probability. It might happen, and there's some probability out there that nobody knows, and it's a matter of debate. Um, I think, like, okay, great, perfect example. A lot of people are afraid of snakes. 
they go out in whatever environment, walking in their yard even, or in the woods, and they're like, I'm going to get bit by a snake. Okay. Now, what I tell them is, and I've known a lot of these people, I, I, I came up with herpetologists, and those guys will go out and intentionally try to find snakes in order to tag them, studying them, whatever. They want to go find snakes. And they know where they are. They... Yeah, they they are the experts at finding snakes. And it is challenging for them to find these snakes. It's not like they go out and all of a sudden they got pant loads of snakes. It's hard. Snakes are rarer than you think they are. You're the the person who's afraid of getting bit by a snake when they go out. Their estimate of the probability of encountering a snake and related, you know, the density of snakes and the population and where they are and all those things is wrong. It's bad. Uh, and that is what drives, and, and if they understood the truer or had a better idea of what the actual probability of encountering a snake on that particular situation was, it would be higher than, than, or lower, the probability would be lower than their estimate. They think it's a high probability. It's really a low probability. And if you could convince them of that, then their fear could be uh, modulated or reduced. That's what I'm talking about. If you can get closer to the true estimates of the occurrence of the things that you're afraid of, that may, it may not, give you a little bit more power and help you loosen your attachment to this fear. Now, it may, it may not work at all because most people just don't believe it. We are so fundamentally think that our estimates of reality are the correct ones that New information just doesn't matter. And that, and that's a whole other problem. I don't really I don't have thought too much about that yet. But we definitely think we're right. <clears throat> and uh, I find peace in probability, low, medium, and high. And the medium ones are tough because then you get, then it's, a, then it's like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Like for me, I don't know why. I know the probability of shark bite is low. But when we go to the beach and swim, even in the surf, I still get, I'm just sort of fundamentally afraid of what's in the water because I can't see it. I don't know. I got a 70s kid. I watch Jaws. Maybe that's it. But then I've got my several of my daughters and my wife and maybe my little daughter all out there with me. And, you know, those those things give me an ir, not irrational, but inaccurate overestimate of the probability of one of us getting mauled by a shark. I, I It's hard for me to change that. So even saying that probability is going to help, there are times when it just simply doesn't. The, the sense of fear is, is and generally somewhat irrational. Uh, fear is too high for something as simple as going, somebody saying, you have a greater chance of dying in a car than a plane. you got nothing to worry about. That is not going to flip a switch in your head that all of a sudden makes you not afraid to fly. I get that. But it sort of helps, I think. Or it, it, it's one of the tools we can use to help put some rationality into the, the somewhat irrational uh, fear and then to think about when that happens. And then, you know, what helps me with sharks, for example, is just to do it and to grin and bear it. And in a 30-minute in session of swimming in the waves at the ocean, I might be able to have 5 to 10 of those at peace and maybe only 20 of those where I'm like, oh, i got to get out of here or, what, you know, whatever it is. And with time, that sort of exposure therapy does help 
to a certain degree, uh, reduce some of the feelings, but that's really interesting. Um, and so I, that's a couple of examples. And then I started thinking about this literally just when I was making notes for this show, it's like, what do we fear? And we fear a whole lot of stuff, you know, from, um, a terrorist plane flying into your house to somebody stealing your wallet to finding out your significant other is having an affair to worrying about your kids growing up to be good people, to not having enough money, to being too fat or too skinny, people not like you. But as I'm thinking about all these different things that people are afraid of, getting shot, getting in a car wreck, it seems to me, and again, I haven't given this a whole lot of time, but you, all of those things can probably be boiled down to some more fundamental fears. And I think those fundamental fears are likely to be related to our basic needs in some one way or another. You know, we're not going to get whatever. And, and, and from what I can tell upon a cursory initial examination, I'll offer a, a hypothesis that those that our fears can be simplified into the fear of being unsafe or the fear of being unloved. Or a combination of the two. So let's think, I think about that for a minute. And, I, I, and I, that may be completely ethnocentric, because, but that's how I feel. My fears are driven um, by not having a place in the world, unloved, and by not being able to f- live a life where fear is minimized, unsafe, Um I need I need my basic biological needs met, physiological needs met, and my basic emotional needs met. And when I don't have those things, that's what starts to screw things up. And I don't I don't know if it can be simplified, but uh, I think about a lot of the things um, that I'm afraid of. And maybe I need to tell a story real quick. I wasn't really aware that fear was the emotion that I was observing for a long time. I thought it was anger or pretension or I didn't understand. And when this really happened, I had a job where we had a lot of meetings and we, that's kind of job where we used to say, we got to have a couple of meetings about this meeting that's coming up. And all we did was have meetings. And sometimes these meetings would involve a complex group of stakeholders and that were involved in a project who all had, entirely different and often con- conflicting um, positions or goals for the project. For example, and then this is an ex- this is a, this is an exaggeration, but a fish biologist who wanted to protect a species and then a fishery person whose money came from harvesting that species or something like that. You know, think of like the spotted owl. Um, that's that was the classic case we learned where they had the spotted owl that didn't allow people to cut down trees because they had a hab- habitat in those trees and the loggers who needed to cut down those trees in order to put food on their table. But those guys like pol- polarized stakeholders is what we had. And I just we'd go through all these meetings and, and, I, and to me it was pretty simple. We just need to compromise. There's a way. There's a, there's, a, there's a solution to this problem. It's pretty easy to identify everybody's needs because all they do in these meetings is scream their needs. I need this. I need that. You know, it's pretty obvious that the loggers needed access to trees and to harvest board feet. This wasn't the project that I worked on, but this is a classic example of polarized user groups. 
It's pretty obvious. They need wood. They need board feet of wood every year that translates to dollars in the bank. They need some of that. Now, probably they can have a little bit less than they currently have. What is that? Make everybody comfortable and everybody pay their bills. We'll figure that out. And then the spotted owls need a certain amount of habitat. Well, if there's a 400-acre range of forest where nobody's seen a spotted owl ever, and there's no evidence of nests, and sampling has been done, and we're, we don't need to probably need to protect that one. Now, if you've got known sightings over here, let's let's put a circle around this and protect this area. There, pr- there were always easy to identify needs, and not that hard to identify possible solutions that could be talked about. But what what the atmosphere of these meetings were, nobody wanted to listen to anybody, and all they were doing was pushing their agendas. All they could do was say, I, me, 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 and not take the time to listen to the other person. And one day I, 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 I sent an email out to everybody in the group trying to make some progress because I, I, you know, I thought I was going to be the guy that came in and figured out a way to get everybody to talk. And I said something that seems so simple to me. I said, everybody seems to be really afraid that they're not going to meet their agency or whoever they worked for, their, their boss, their company. They're not going to be able to meet their goals. That's what I sense at these meetings is fear. The people are afraid of doing something wrong, so they're afraid of not being able to meet their goal, whether it's protect the species and adhere to the Endangered Species Act or put money and food on the table. And that fear was making it impossible for them to consider any alternatives. And secondarily... If you could get them to consider other alternatives, <clears throat> they were afraid they were going to make the wrong choice or that it wasn't going to work. And, and I said that, and everybody got super offended. And even my bosses were like, you can't tell people they're scared. You can't accuse people. These people are all super smart, and they're not scared. They're super aware of their position. They understand, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, everybody was really smart. Yeah, everybody had these great understandings of their own little piece of the pie, but they wouldn't listen and understand anybody else's piece of the pie because they were too afraid that that was going to make them weak. So not only were they afraid of being wrong, of being fired, you know, they were afraid of being seen as weak. So many series of, and so (laughs) most of that can be boiled down to feeling unsafe and and feeling unliked at the table. But probably not so much the unliked because there were some pretty heated debates and it was pretty obvious that people didn't really care if the other side uh, liked them or not. But certainly feeling unsafe. And and so that's that's when I had the epiphany that what we're doing, this, this seemingly, the seeming impasse that we get to in life where you have to agree to disagree or whatever, Except in this case, you're trying to make a decision together. The impasse is largely caused by fear paralyzing people from action. And and so ever since then, and this has been 10 years or so, I've been obsessed with this idea that when, when I hear somebody, when I get uncomfortable in a situation or confused about somebody's position, I tend to believe that it's fear at the root. Of this, and it's fear that they they are unsafe or un, unloved. Well, and that's actually something I just thought about today that that the the root that the root of that fear. And so, where does that come from, and and why do I think it's that simple, or why do I postulate that it could be as simple as being unsafe and unloved? Well, I think these fears 
ultimately are developed when we're kids. And it goes back to what the old beliefs episode where we, we, we get into situations as kids when we're too young to protect. We don't have the skills to protect ourselves. We don't have the emotional ammunition or armor to um, understand the world well enough not and to deal with new spontaneous physiological and emotional responses to a certain situation. You know, I spent most of my life thinking everybody was great and happy and things were good. And then the first time I encounter a bully and really don't understand, feel unsafe, feel confused, really don't have any known behaviors that I can impose and react in this sort of situation. Uh, and so I, I froze, you know, our reactions to fear are always different, right? Fight, flight, free, or there's another one. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter. So I talked about that a little bit in the old beliefs episode, how these things happen. And I think, I think what we, what we basically have as adults is we're carrying around these old responses, reactions, feelings about this fear of whatever the fears are that are, again, I'll argue are some artifact of unsafe and unloved. And we can, when we continue to react the same way and we feel so stronger, so strongly, stronger and stronger every time that we impose these, these mechanisms of react or reactions or, or the way we deal with things that they become very ingrained and automatic. Um, and so there are there is a psychological therapy technique. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but it basically is about working with your inner child and thinking back to when you were young and trying to sort of remember what might have happened to you when you learned some of these things. And it's fascinating. And there are several books, and there's actually workbooks you can buy. And I'll um, oh, I can't remember the author uh, of these things now, but I'll try to put those. <laughs> on a page on my webpage eventually of resources where you can do this kind of work. And there are people who can help you get back and sort of discover some of these things and sort of pick apart, like to forgive yourself for not being able to react in the best, most helpful way possible. And for creating some temporary mechanism to deal with, whether that was run away or fight or or flee or cuss or throw a fit or call the police or or maybe be you know unfortunately be taken advantage of and have terrible things happen to you and then process those things because you didn't tell anybody we do we did what we had to do and we have to forgive ourselves for that number 1 but but number 2 all those actions I don't know why, because we're young, because they're so intense, because the fear is so great, because it's unknown, and you are so unsafe or so unloved, that whatever you do to survive, you're so relieved at having survived whatever that was, that you develop a really intense relationship with that feeling and your behavior, and it becomes hard and then we stuff it down inside and it becomes even harder because we don't want to think about it ever again. But when, when that emotion starts to come back up for some reason because we feel unsafe again as adults, well, guess what? It brings with it what you did before and um, you behave in a way that you may not understand, but it's rooted in this, this thing that happened to you. 
And I, and I truly believe, well, I believe some people are really lucky in life and things like that don't ever happen to them. They're never told they're different. They're never told they're unloved. They're never, they never encounter an unsafe situation. And in some ways I'm, I'm very jealous and envious of, of people who may have never suffered any kind of trauma um, and, and developed some of these fear coping mechanisms that I'm talking about. But at the same time, I, I don't feel sorry for them because <clears throat> they never got to have that experience. Because those experiences are opportunities to understand how they happen. And, and, and that's what we've got to do is look at <clears throat> our, our, our childhood, and I guess these could happen in adults too, but for some reason that combination of, of fear and, uns, and, and safety and, and as a child and really not being blindsided, I guess it probably happens anytime you're really blindsided by something. You have to come up immediately with some sort of coping strategy to survive or it's seemingly to survive that situation emotionally and, and physiologically and, and because the intensity of those situations, um, we believe that those techniques work and oftentimes they don't, but they, but they serve their purpose, right? And it's just now we can learn from that and maybe figure out what happened. And the important part of that is, is, is it's, our fear is not going to change until we can let go of what we perceive to be the relationship and the strength and the attachment to the feeling and the, and the behavior. Yeah, I guess that's enough that I want to say about that. Um, <clears throat> see if there's anything else that I might be missing. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, one, one other thing I thought about is to try to test the hypothesis that all the fears can be put into a, <clears throat> a safety or a love um, category. And, you know, I tend to think of our fears from the position of some of the issues and uh, psychological things that we deal with today. And it's like, okay, <clears throat> If you're obsessed with money and you're greedy or even gluttonous, really, can't you trace that back to a safety issue or maybe even a love issue because you want people to like you because you're wealthy and you want to feel like you're safe because you have money to buy shelter and food and all those things. You know, and if you're, you're, you're obsessed with or you're afraid that uh, people won't have sex with you, maybe you're a sex addict, uh, you know, doesn't that come back to some need for love um, or, or feeling position in the world and having a tribe? You know, I think a lot of them can can come down to don't have my tribe. You know, th- th- this is bizarre, but on Dak Shepard's podcast the other day, somebody said <clears throat> that male adults over like 60 that don't have friends, that don't have one friend, that have zero friends, have a greater chance of premature death than somebody who has smoked 15 cigarettes a year. I don't really remember, or I didn't really hear, they didn't say the specifics of that, but generally saying that the emotional, the the lack of, 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 of love that somebody with no friends has can be a bigger health detriment than smoking cigarettes. So, I mean, this is a thing. That happens. Uh, that I, I would. I would like to find ways to improve, and I and I can't. I can't tell you how to make friends. I mean, we could do another podcast on that. I personally am not am not really that good about nurturing my friend relationships. But the point is, like it or not, we do have a, a, a need 
the inherent fundamental biological emotional need to be loved and to, you know, call it what you will. I'm saying be loved, but be part of a tribe, be part of a culture, be part of something you have identity with and people you can interact with. Put it simply, we're social creatures. I think COVID is, is teaching us or revealing that, pulling up the, opening the shades on that. Um, even me, who's pretty introverted, uh, you know, I get a lot out of doing this podcast because I do feel like I'm talking to you, even though there's only a few people that may find this or listen to it and certainly even fewer who enjoy it. Uh, I feel like that's still valuable. So I, I, I don't know if it's worth going down that road because I'm going to argue that I can fit any fear back into this thing, whether you agree with that or not. And so I, I then I, so I talked a little bit about, I think why we have fear uh, it's a protective mechanism that is developed through uh, ecological um, or uh, natural selection by ec- ecological means. You know, uh, what do we fear? You know, again, I argue that it all comes back to being loved or being safe. And then sort of the how the fear works or how it manifests itself. Um, and I think the biggest fears that drive our behavior in adulthoods um result from situations that happened when we had no coping mechanisms and we had to develop something on the spot and this sort of idea of old beliefs and childhood trauma that could be explored through um, therapy. And so that's the last part about this is how do we change it? And I think we can do a lot of different things. And I think the first thing we have to do is realize that we're not going to flip a switch and go from having fears about something and let's call let's call these irrational fears the ones that we want to work on you know being afraid that i am going to burn myself when i l- burn wood in our fire pit i don't want to lose that fear <laughs> you know i want to have a healthy fear of fire uh because it keeps me safe i don't that's a pretty rational uh belief i'm talking about the irrational stuff that may be holding us back from getting the things we want or even potentially harming our lives, things like agoraphobia, or even metaphobia like I suffered from, or, or not having friends, or, or whatever it is. Those are the, the fears that I'm talking about. So if, one of the things we can do, number one, is admit that these things are super strong. They're inherent part of our personality, probably. You know, why we were afraid of the certain things that we were afraid of, you know, it probably has a lot to do with just how we are. And they're not going to change. You're not going to flip a switch and you're not going to make them go away. What we can do is change the way that we deal with them. We can actually learn to stop briefly. And this is where mindfulness comes in and identify what's happening and become aware of it. And that's the fundamental first thing you have to do. And I never believe this because of these things, because a lot of these things are so automatic and they happen in fractions of a second before you even realize what's happening. You're already in your reaction mode. Um, but we can learn to see that and go, Oh, it's, Hey, 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 this is happening. It's like, and, and meditation is a great tool because all I, my goal in meditation is just to go up oh, thinking, up oh, thinking. And all you're doing there, that's the whole goal. And if you can do that for five minutes, two minutes, one minute, 30 minutes, an hour, that's awesome. You're going to still have the thoughts, but you're going to point them out and then let them go. And so that's the first step, I think, in sort of dealing with fear is just um, saying that's, that, that, that's a win, <laughs> you know, if you can just do that. And then secondarily, you can develop techniques uh, and you could work with a therapist or uh, especially nowadays, you can do all, the, all these programs have these online therapists where you can do all this over Zoom. Why, why would we not be doing that? Well, 
That's a whole other thing. There's a lot of stigma associated with that. But you can work with someone who will help you not only recognize your what fears are important, maybe do some inner child work and go back and, and find out what it is in your life that you're that's holding you back, um, that's fear related, and then develop some coping strategies. So not only will you be able to say, uh, oh, oh. Uh, I told my friends I didn't want to go out tonight because I'm afraid of of public places, especially now after COVID, right? I mean, this may be a new thing that it comes out. And I know that that's what I'm doing. I know, okay, I'd have fun. I want to see these people. They're going to do this. Should I let my fear of going out into public places override my need? Okay, I'm. you know what? I'm going to do it or whatever. You know, you, you can work with people to come up with solutions, um, I think, to do that. But I think... Um, I think uh, initially being able to, just awareness, telling yourself, I want to know more about what's happening in my life. That goes, you know, that may get you 70% of the way. That's the first step. And then the awareness um, in the moment, because you've been practicing being aware, and one day you'll go, oh, I'm doing that. I'm doing that thing, you know, Um, whatever it is. Oh, I'm I'm getting onto the highway and I don't like merging into traffic and I'm telling myself that I can't do it. Oh, I'm d- I'm doing that. I can do it. I know how to do this. Why am I saying this to myself? You know that, and maybe you pull over on the side of the road and you have a moment, and, and all those moments build. And I think in order to do that, you know, another word that comes to mind is bravery. You you have to have the courage to want to do it. Uh, first, you have to give a shit. I mean, a lot of people don't. You know, and then if if you've identified something that you're sad about or that limits your life or and you know it reduces your personal growth or somehow reduces your quality of life or presents a problem to you some regularity, you know, why would you not want to change that? Because it's it's hard. You know, change in itself has a lot of fear associated with it. Um, but all of these things uh, can be addressed, and I think I think I think. There's a lot of resources out there to help you do that, but I think a lot of it can just be done on our own. But what I really like to, to you know, in a perfect world where a lot of you guys, you know, are listening and, and, and want to provide feedback is just, you know, the, the, the fear net, the fear web. You know, I, I see it pretty basic. We have physiological and emotional responses to safety and tribal issues in our lives. We've developed all kinds of weird, crazy ways to deal with that, that some of some have uh, manifested themselves as rational, protective mechanisms and fears like the fire thing. And some, you know, are just artifacts of situations that we were in that for some reason we gave or created more power than they deserved. And we carry those along with us that potentially affect our lives in less than positive ways. And those are all related to things that we're afraid of. And so can we use a set of different techniques, awareness, bravery, assigning probability, trying new things, whatever it is, uh, to address those in order to alter and, and potentially increase the, the quality of life that we have? I, I, that all seems pretty basic to me. And then so quickly, just to close, I'll, I'll say that in the grand scheme of things, in trying to address these issues personally with myself over the last 10 years or so, I have, I will say I've made a little progress. I think more often than in the past, 
I can identify what's happening. And then less frequently, I can implement a more correct or health, more healthy reaction. Uh, but overall, I still have intense, um, paralyzing fear moments that are very, very similar to the ones that I used to have in the past. So my life has improved, but it hasn't gone away. And some days, and then the hard part there is not to beat myself up when I do have those sort of reactions. Um, and so in a nutshell, sort of one of my big stories was I got picked on a lot and really didn't, un- didn't know how to react. And so I was paralyzed. I froze and, um, that created a whole different set of situations. And one of the things I always ask myself is what if I would have just fought back? I think that would have changed a lot for me. And to the point where if I met a, an eight year old kid who was suffering from the same things, I would probably give them, if I had an eight year old son, I would think hard about giving him that advice of just fight back, get pummeled, get beat up if that's what it takes or potentially, you know, uh, win that fight and gain the confidence. You know, I think freezing is probably not always the right reaction. Not doing anything um, may off may may be the ultimate wrong thing to do uh, because that anyway. Uh, and 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 then there's other things. You know, um, um, I, I did from from that sort of trauma that. You know, childhood situation. I also developed some um, mechanisms to try to be a people pleaser to help avoid those. You know, I came up with a whole series of sort of behaviors that I carry around with me. So, you know, I'm I'm afraid of I remain afraid of conflict, and I uh, have developed people pleasing um, behaviors to help further avoid conflict, keep everybody happy. And sort of become a chameleon, you know, not disagree with people, and and that that whole behavior pattern is just like a is like a web into everything in my life, and so I have to work really hard every day to try to get my own personal needs met, to not be a doormat, uh, to not be codependent, you know, it's pretty pretty common, pretty typical situation. But that's that's where all of my stuff manifests itself, and yeah, in general, that's gotten a little bit better with the help of a lot of people, by me talking about it, by me making people aware of this, by me reminding myself, but it hasn't, it hasn't overwhelmingly changed and like, you know, changed me from, um, you know, Clark Kent to Superman. <laughs> uh, but, but it's better and I'm still working on it. And, and even talking about it right now makes me a little bit disappointed that I haven't, you know, solved that problem. And I can't come to you all Tony Robbins and say, I can, you could fix yourself or whatever. Um, it is what it is. And generally I'm okay with that. I mean, I just feel the, the, the twang of why can't I fix that? And certainly there are tons of people out there who would laugh, probably laughing if they would make it this far in the video that I would say something like that. But I think a lot of us have similar problems and there's probably really just like a basic handful of things, you know, basic. That's why I, I think trying to dumb it down into safety and, and, and love, uh, there may be something to that. So, you know, if you made it this far in this video and you haven't done this work yet, and this is the first time that you're hearing any of these things, 
I, I, I highly recommend that you explore this a little bit because yeah, I'm much better off knowing what I know about myself and potentially how to change it. Now, if, if I'm, you know, it's just like, it's just like working out. If you've accepted that, if you work out an hour or five days a week and eat a different diet, you can change your body. Yeah. You believe that you may not do it, but you're doing, you're not overeating and sitting on the couch at 12 hours a day. You know, you're somewhere in the Goldilocksian space of, of knowing that this is better than that. And, you know, and that's sort of where I am with the mental health thing. Anyway, fear. I would love to hear what you think about this. And you can always, there's so many different ways to reach out to me. Um, there are YouTube comments. There are comments on my webpage. You can email me directly, K plus E is wise at Gmail. Um, or just continue to listen. I appreciate your curiosity and I look forward to talking with you again. Have a great day. This is Chris Bircher. Knowledge plus experience equals wisdom. Take it easy.